Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRose Show. We are joined today by Grant Williams, author of Things That Make You Go Hmm, and host of the Grant Williams Podcast. In this episode, we got Grant's macroeconomic outlook and why investors need to be prepared for both a recession and a soft landing. We talked about how you have to have those two opposing ideas in your mind at once. We also discussed uh, Japan and the significance there and the opportunities there. We also got into the importance of what you learn in your generation and how that shapes your worldview, especially as an investor. We had a nice conversation around gold, inflation, and much, much more. I learned so much from Grant in this hour, and I know you all will too. So I hope you all enjoyed this one as much as I did. Grant Williams, author of the things that make you go, hmm, and host of the Grant Williams podcast. It is so great to see you again, and it's great to welcome you on my show for the first time. Thank you so much for joining me, Grant. Well, thank you for inviting me. I mean, it's, it's not often I get re- uh, return requests, so this is it's the first time <laughs> you and I have had a chance to speak in quite a few years now, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's probably been uh, 2017. It was so funny. Did I looked at one, wow. one of those memories pop up on Facebook of uh, you and I <laughs> in studio in New York back in the day. And yeah, so it's just six years ago. Holy cow. Yeah, a long time. Long time. Well, the world's changed a lot. Little, well, Grant, yeah. <laughs> I want to start where I always start with my guests, and that is with their big picture macro view of the economy and the markets and. One of the things about this show is you can take as much time as you'd like to set the table. What is the big picture for you today? Confusion. You know, I think it's um, it's a very confusing picture. And uh, the thing that kind of uh, I'm very wary of right now is certainty. Anyone who's certain about what's going to happen, um, I think, is kidding themselves because we're in this kind of weird... We're in this weird air pocket where everyone's convinced there's a recession coming. Everyone's convinced they're going to cut rates, and yet the data's coming in strong. We saw payroll numbers today, which um, surprised an awful lot of people. Um, you know, the Fed want weaker data so they can cut. They're not getting it. The market doesn't want a recession, but wants rate cuts. So there's a massive amount of confusion around right now, and that that makes it difficult for investors. And it also suggests that. Um, we are likely to see higher volatility. Because anytime there's this much confusion around, it 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 suggests that we will see spikes in vol uh, as as unexpected things play out. So, you know, it, it, from a broad perspective, uh, I think everybody should get rid of any certainty they have about any outcome. Be very very nimble in terms of their positioning and be uh, ready for a recession and a soft landing at the same time, which is you know, really not an easy thing to do. So it sounds like you have these two opposing ideas, this get ready for a recession or get ready for a soft landing. I want to hear more on that. Can we explore that further? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, look, I think we've all become accustomed to to having an investment thesis and then, and then uh, allocating capital accordingly. Um, and that's been okay because we've been in a kind of wildly trending market for a long time with periodic periods of stress. Um, you know, the backdrop has been climbing this wall of worry, but now we sit here, um, and as I said, from everyone from the Fed down to retail investors, there's just confusion everywhere, and no one really has a strong sense of what's going to happen. Now, people are still kind of wedded to this um, this idea that the markets are going to go higher. They're still wedded to the idea of the, that the Fed will come in and save the day, but at the same time, you've got the Fed desperately trying to use forward guidance this time to to kind of hint that rates are going to stay higher for longer and and markets are not listening to them they're acting as if there's going to be rate you know, there's three rate cuts i think priced, three rate cuts priced into next year already so yeah i remember years ago billy Connolly, i think it was said that the, the the definition of intelligence is being able to hear the william tell overture and not think of the lone ranger so this idea of having two things in your head at the same time is a skill that everyone's going to need to learn. And it, and it doesn't mean you can't pick a side and position yourself accordingly, but you have to understand that if you're wrong this time, it's it's not that the likely outcome is your thesis doesn't play out. If you're wrong, it means likely the complete reverse of your thesis plays out. And so it means you need to be positioned completely different. And so that requires a plan for both outcomes. Okay, how do I want to be positioned if we get a recession? How do I want to be positioned if we get a soft landing and and recognize when you're wrong and do what it's really difficult for so many of us to do, and that's to admit we're wrong and say, right, okay, I need to completely 
upend everything and go with the other scenario. So it's it's, it's very confusing, um, and I think it's going to be confusing. Um, it doesn't mean you can't you can't do things. It doesn't mean you can't allocate capital. It doesn't mean you can't adjust your portfolio. But you adjusting it and kind of stepping away and waiting for it to work is potentially a very dangerous thing to do right now. Okay, this is why. I- I love having you on because I think you're the first person who's brought this up on the show. And (laughs) maybe it's not in our human nature. You have to like learn to have two opposing ideas at once in your mind because, okay, on social media, for example, today, Twitter, we are recording on Friday. We just got the the jobs report and so many people on FinTwitter and the consumer sentiment that came out um, from uh, University of Michigan. Everyone's like, oh, where where are all the people who are calling for a recession now kind of taking victory laps? I kind of wonder in this environment when it's a little murky, uh, I guess very murky, do people get more wedded to their ideas like one camp or the other camp? Well, the the problem with Twitter is a phenomenal um, resource. Yeah, there's some there's some incredibly smart people on there. A lot of them just pour out information for free and you can learn an awful lot from Twitter. It's also... uh, the kind of fountainhead of hubris, um, particularly in the financial markets. And so what you find is people are very loud on Twitter and they make pronouncements on Twitter. And whenever you see anybody make a pronouncement, someone is keeping score somewhere. Someone's screenshotting uh, a tweet and they're keeping receipts. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. And so you, you, know, you tend to find that, that, that because things are swinging so much, people are right and wrong and right and wrong. And it's very difficult to publicly say, oh my God, I screwed that up. I was talking to Jared Dillian, um, mm-hmm. who I know you know, uh, actually yeah. this morning. Uh, he's we coming on in January, about, so yeah. Yeah, and we, and we were talking about just how difficult it is for people to say, man, I screwed that up. I was completely wrong. And yet, what you find is the people that are willing to say that, um, you know, the kudos they get for being willing to admit when they're wrong, it, it's in the comments. So, you know, you, you're going to see an awful lot of, grave dancing on things like the dollar, on things like gold, on things like Bitcoin, things that are moving around and have very polarized, uh, people have very polarized opinions on. Um, you know, all the all the Bitcoin doomsayers have been shut up and Michael Saylor's back in my Twitter feed again, right? Which tells you what's happening with the price. And I'm, you know, it's not going to go straight from here to a million bucks. So at some point it's going to go through some more pain and Saylor's going to keep quiet and all the guys are going to come out and start dancing his grave again. The trick for most of us is just to decide what it is that matters to us. Decide, you know, we, we, we can't have a position on everything. And, you know, this has been my position on crypto. I just don't care about it, right? So I, I don't have the time to devote to something I don't really care about. So I let all the haters hate and I let all the lovers love. And I, you know, I just, I'm agnostic about it. I, I choose to focus elsewhere. But whatever it is, we all need to think about, okay, what do we, what do we believe we understand? What do we believe we have a chance of getting right? And what should we leave alone? Because we don't really have an edge in it. And you know, there are things that you kind of have to pay attention to. The dollar, you kind of have to understand the dollar. You kind of have to have a view on it because it, it affects so many things. Um, I would argue that the yen is something else that everybody needs to start mm-hmm. understanding. I've been talking about this for several months now, and it's I think it's becoming more important to understand what's going on in Japan, not less. Even if you don't do anything about it, the changes in Japan are going to ripple through so many parts of financial markets. Um, and then, and then say, pick pick and stick to the things that you understand, you feel like you have an edge in, you feel like you're competent in, and you feel like you can either make money or protect capital with. It's it's that simple to me. Don't don't get sucked into being forced to have an opinion on everything, being forced to have a view, being forced to have a position. It's okay to sometimes say, you know, I just don't care about that, or I don't know about that. It's it's absolutely fine. You know, you, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna fall over if you say that. That's why you are so wonderful. Okay, so you mentioned um, two areas I want to explore with you. You said you do you do, on the dollar that it is important to have a view. Can we get your view on the U.S. dollar? Yeah, look, I, I think the dollar is is um, as we've seen, as we've seen, as goes the dollar, so goes so many other assets. You know, I I I, I look at uh, my great mate uh, Brent Johnson's milkshake theory, mm-hmm. and you know, Brent's done a phenomenal job of first of all. Um, kind of uh, vocalizing that and then kind of explaining it to everybody. And you know, Brent and I have spoken about this many times in the past that you know he, he gets involved in all these swings and the hubris and the snarky texts and he, he loves it. I don't know how he's got the mental energy to do it, but he does. Um, and that milkshake theory is absolutely in play, but it's not a one-way ticket. You know, we're, we're seeing the dollar, we've seen the dollar be incredibly strong and now it's starting to, to come off. You know, as, as the rate cuts are priced in, 
a lot more of this uh, dollar strength is interest rate differentials than I think people uh, maybe ascribe to it. And we're starting to see that play out as Fed cuts get more and more priced in. We're starting to see um, you know, a weaker and weaker dollar. And it's not that the dollar's going to collapse, but it could stop going up. And if the dollar stops going up, you know, it changes a lot of things for commodities. It changes things for gold. It changes things for cross-currencies. And at the same time, you have got these moves in Japan with the Bank of Japan um, moving to normalize. And they've been kind of moving in that direction for a little while now. Um, and in fact, I wrote a piece uh, at the beginning of November called Bullet Time, where I talked about the moves that the, J- the Japanese central bank have made in terms of um, you know, their own forward guidance about about normalizing. And, w- and when you think about what normalizing means in Japan, you know, they've still got negative interest rates. Um, and they still essentially have had yield curve control in place. And that has completely changed not only their own markets in terms of the Japanese government bond market. You know, there, there are days when the 10-year JGB just hasn't traded because there's no no point in trading at the Bank of Japan. There is a line in the sand. That's been tested, and they've been forced to kind of raise the band and let the 10-year trade in. Um, but more importantly, the currency. You know, uh, if Japanese rates normalize, and by that means they're going to try and move them back to positive territory uh, if they can get the kind of inflation they need to do that. But if you think about a, a policy rate of negative 10 basis points, if the Japanese moved to positive 10 basis points, would it have a dramatic effect on the economy in terms of borrowing? Probably not. It's debatable whether it would have really any effect in terms of the actual mechanics of money moving around the Japanese system. Psychologically, however, uh, will it have an effect on capital flows? I would argue an enormous effect because the, you know, the yen has been the funding currency for so long now, and the Japanese, the biggest exporters of capital in the world. And if you can suddenly get a real positive return on domestic Japanese assets. And if the central bank has a quiet word in pension fund ears and says, hey, we want you to start bringing some capital down, we want you to help us to carry some of the weight in the bond market, um, that money's coming home. And if that money comes home, uh, it's going to mean assets being sold elsewhere. It's going to mean currency sold elsewhere uh, for the yen. And so uh, you know, for me, that's been the thing that I've been focused on most for the last three or four months. And during that time, we saw the yen kind of get weaker and weaker and weaker. We saw a couple of half-hearted attempts at intervention by the Bank of Japan at kind of the 150 level and then 152, three, somewhere around there. Um, and it kept kind of weakening. Uh, and it didn't make any sense to me. It just, it just, given what they were saying, given what they were trying to do, everything they're trying to do should be immensely positive for the yen. And then Without any warning, we suddenly see it turn around in the last uh, few days. And, and some of that, I'm sure, is dollar weakness. Some of it is yen strength. But it shows you how quickly the yen can move. And we've had these periods in the past where the yen has made massive moves in a very short space of time um, because it is such a widely used funding currency. So you know, that's something that I think people need to, need to be paying really, really close attention to. Because even if you don't care about Japanese stocks, you don't care about the yen, you don't care about the Japanese bond market, it's the second order effects of what happens when capital flows into and out of Japan change that are going to affect an awful lot of assets all the way around the world. We explain that though the second order effect. Um, like maybe walk walk us through like how that yeah. plays out. Well, okay. So let's let's say that let's say that the Bank of Japan says to um, one of the big life insurance life insurers in Japan, and, and to and to uh, kind of preface this to give people who aren't familiar with Japan um, a little kind of context, you know. Japanese society is very different to um, to Western society. Very different. It's a very orderly society. It's a very different culture. And um, one of the great examples from recent years are post Fukushima, when the country still had uh, rolling blackouts, there were power outages all around the country, and it was you know the, they were going into winter. And uh, Abe San, the prime minister at the time, uh, went onto TV and said, "Look, you know, we have these power problems." The right thing to do for the for Japanese people is to you know wear sweaters and eat more soup, and sales of sweaters and soup went through the roof. It's just that kind of a culture. So if the if the Bank of Japan says to the life insurers, listen, we need you to help us pick up some of the load in the bond market, we need you to buy Japanese government bonds. They're going to be selling U.S. assets. They're going to be selling European assets and repatriating that money. So when they, they so you're going to see pressure on overseas assets, overseas stock markets, overseas bond markets, 
and you're going to see the, the the proceeds of those sales converted into yen, which is going to put pressure on those other currencies and put upward pressure on the yen as they as they repatriate that um, that capital. So, given the amount of yen that's been used as a funding currency, because you've known for so long that the interest rates are going to be essentially zero, um, everybody in the world is short the yen from from a carry perspective. So you've got this massive short. You've got a central bank who said as carefully as they can, because I don't want to scare the horses, we are going to move to normalized interest rates in Japan. We're going to move to come back to some kind of semblance of, of normality after you know, 20 years of, of uh, extraordinary monetary policy. And people haven't necessarily heard them or haven't necessarily thought about what that means or potentially haven't believed them or believed they'd be able to do it. Not that they don't want to do it, that they'd be able to do it. Um, and maybe they can't. But as I say, if 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 they even move rates from negative ten basis points to plus ten basis points, it's not going to be earth shaking from a purely systemic perspective. But the shifts and the message it sends are enormous, and we've seen some phenomenal results uh, being posted by the Japanese banks. We've seen a corporate sector that has changed dramatically in terms of how it treats shareholders for buybacks mm-hmm. for dividends. We've seen. Um, uh, a country that's been that's been used to operating in uh, a very suboptimal environment in terms of demand. So the Japanese corporate sector is in great shape, uh, and these are world class companies. You know, this is not yeah. uh, you know a developing market. This is third biggest economy in the world with world leading companies in just about every sector. And I think it's a place where people are going to go to to find uh, even if it's just places to rotate out of the U.S. into. I think Japan is going to be a target for a lot of investors. You know, we've seen Warren Buffett um, make exactly. a big noise about this uh, maybe eight months ago or so. Yeah, it's um, going to bring up his bets in Japan as well. Yeah, for sure. And so, I, yeah, I just think if you if you're looking for alternatives to the U.S. and people have been, uh, Japan, I think now offers a, a tremendous alternative to the U.S. Simply the size of the economy, the quality of companies. It doesn't have the 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 lack of cohesion that European politics has it the european policy has um and it's it's cheap you know it's relatively trading at, at low levels compared to some of these so i just i just think it should be on everybody's radar even if they're not going to invest in it but just understand what a shift back to domestic assets overseas capital from japan is going to have elsewhere so i take it you have some exposure in japan then yeah i i, I have exposure but it's it's very high level exposure it's, it's mm-hmm. an exposure to uh japanese etfs and but you know, the problem is Doing what I do and traveling as much as I do, I can't do what I used to in terms of trading the market and sitting every day watching positions. And so, um, you know, I I just can't put money into individual stocks when I'm on planes three days a week because you know what happens? You get on a plane overnight, you come back, something's happened, and you haven't had time to react to it. So my my exposure is to Japan, not to specific companies. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I don't know if this is true or not or accurate, but. I- when I was prepping for this interview, Grant, did you start your career in Japan? I did. That- yes. Okay, so you did. Nice right, prepping. And, and you kind of hustled to get that job on the trading floor, I believe. Can you just I while did. we're on the topic of Japan? Yeah, I want to hear yeah. about that. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, this was uh, this was uh, 1985, so we're talking a long, long time ago here, almost almost 40 years ago. Um, and you know, at the time, the Japanese market was was the hottest market in the world. It was it was crazy what was happening there. And um, I got a job in the settlements department at, a, at a, uh, a merchant bank called Robert Fleming & Co in London, which has long since been subsumed into JP Morgan, unfortunately. Um, but I got a job in the in the back office. I was literally a partition wall away from the trading desk, and I was desperate, desperate to get on the trading desk. Uh, and so I, I spent, geez, about six months. Uh, you know, my, I, everybody came into my part of the office about eight o'clock in the morning. And I was getting in at five o'clock every morning for six months. I just sat in reception. And I waited for the head trader to come in. And uh, a, guy, a guy called John Galvanoni, who was an absolute legend in the London markets, an absolute legend, and a real old school trader. He had you know, crazy hair and he smoked cigars on the desk. And he was, he, he was just an unbelievable character. And I just waited for him. And every morning he'd come in and I would say, you know, morning, John, have you got any jobs for me? And he, first he ignored me. And then he said, no. Uh, and then he, you know, he sort of said, "Oh, not you again, son." And then he eventually worked out my name. And then one day, you know, after six months or so, 
um, I got a shot. And so uh, I got thrown into this this insane bull market in Japan, which um, was good and bad for me because I, you know, I, I, I cut my teeth in a raging bull market, uh, which I, I, is a dangerous thing to do because you, you, you kind of learn an awful lot of bad habits that you can buy crappy companies at the wrong price and they go up anyway because you're in the middle of a raging bull market. But luckily, and I, and I genuinely mean luckily, uh, I had the 87 crash come along a year after I, not even a year, less than a year after I had first got my first trading book. And um, and that was shocking to me. It completely upended my worldview uh, in terms of what was possible, uh, in terms of what could go wrong and how a problem in the US, as it seemed at the time, could ripple through every single market in the world. So I kind of had the best of both of us. I had um, the biggest one-day crash in history and one of the most insane bull markets in history to, to learn from. Wow. And, I, and I learned lessons from both. Um, and you know, all you can do after that is make sure you try and apply the right lessons to the right situations because if you get the wrong way around, you're, you're finished. Oh, wow. That's a really good point. Okay, so 1987 crash and being in Japan and seeing how that event in the US had effects and now even tying that today. What okay? What was that like in 1987 when you're on the floor? Like, how, one, how did you guys get the information? Was it you're watching TV? Oh, like, how was boy, it coming boy, through? Boy, like, boy. take me back because yeah. this is interesting. I, I this, wasn't even born then, so this is. Uh, I knew you were going to say that. This is like <laughs> having my grandkids around telling them stories from back in the day. But I yeah, look, it was a very different time, and um, it, it, the markets we were trading was was phone to phone. So you would speak to your competition at the other trading houses, and you would you would trade directly with each other, and um, you know it was. It was a phenomenal time. I mean, we we were writing 500 tickets each a day. There's probably six traders, and we were each writing 500 tickets a day. Um, and and you spent all day trying to beat the brains out of your competition and steal every penny you could from them. And then we'd all go down the pub afterwards, uh, you know, and we'd have a beer together, and it, it was tremendous. You know, and I knew at the time this is the best job I'm ever going to have. And, and to this day, it absolutely has been. It was it was so much fun and so exciting and such an adrenaline rush. And of course. I was a young man, and so I had a lot more energy. Um, but information—I mean, we—we you know, we didn't have a Bloomberg screen. We had Reuters terminals. Um, we had a Japanese quick terminal to get all the Japanese uh, share prices, uh, share price quotes, and they were static. Um, it, it was a very, very different time. And you know, in in some ways, I look at the information available today, and I think, wow, wouldn't it have been great to have that kind of information back then? But there are many ways in which I look at it now and think, you know, it's just information overload and and mm -hmm. trading back then based on the fundamentals of the stock and the occasional um, news article that would come out. We didn't have the, the views of 500 independent analysts being thrown into the pit every day. And it was just, um, it, was, uh, it was a much less sophisticated time, uh, a much more enjoyable time. And... Um, and a much simpler time, and I, you know, there are. I don't want to sound like one of those old guys, you know, old man screaming at clouds or ruin the, the, his lost youth. But boy, did we have some fun back then! I bet. Can, I'm just going to make a comment just for the viewers, like just you that kind of visual of you waiting in reception 5 a.m. hustling to get that <laughs> job. And the, you know what? Like that, doing that though, that's why you're here, where you are today, because you were like, okay, rather than just like waiting for someone to notice, you're like, you're going to make them notice you and I love that and like just the hustle and I think it's such a valuable lesson for people yeah look, go, I think it is I, I, I think it, that and you know Julia what what the last the last 10 years have taught me funnily enough um, is is this idea that people are generally wired to help you know mm -hmm. and so so this idea um, that there's somebody out there that you want to reach. The social media is, is such a great tool for this. There's someone out there that you want to reach and ask for help. I mean, you know, if you need someone to lend you a few hundred bucks, you, you might want to think about going to someone close to the home. But if you want someone to help you understand something that's happening in financial markets or, you know, it's amazing how you can just DM all these incredibly uh, well-regarded people on Twitter. And look, you're, you're not going to get an answer back from all of them, but I think people would be surprised as to how many people will be willing to to reply to a, a message or you know give up 15 20 30 minutes of their day to help someone understand something or you know help someone who's hustling and wants to you know understand or, or or get some information i think we all appreciate that i think when you've been in this industry for any length of time you recognize hustle and you appreciate it and and mm -hmm. most of us have had to hustle at some point in our careers and uh 
you know, as I say, when you see people keen enough to do that, then if you can help them, I think you do. Hey there, I just want to quickly interrupt the video and just say thank you. Thank you so much for coming to this channel and choosing to watch this interview. I hope that you are enjoying it and I appreciate you visiting the channel. If you like what you see, please hit that subscribe button. It doesn't cost anything. It's totally free and it will keep you up to date on all of my interviews. I post two interviews a week with some of the most incredible people in, in finance and investing and your support will help me bring in some more amazing guests. If you already are one of my subscribers, thank you so much. I cannot express to you how much your support means to me. I am incredibly grateful that I get to do something that I'm truly passionate about. And you being there week after week, it not only gives me that energy, but it just gives me that faith to keep going. And it means everything to me. And I love seeing you all in the comments section. I love interacting with you. I love interacting with you on email or social media. I just love hearing from you all. And I just appreciate your support so much. I feel incredibly lucky that I get to do something that I just love. So I just want to say thank you and appreciate you subscribing. All right, back to the interview. You know, another point that you brought up, I was taking notes and I'm learning a lot from you, was you were pointing out that you were lucky to have experienced the 1987 crash because that was so shocking to you that it upended your worldview. And it makes me just kind of step back and think about the worldviews that we form maybe even generationally too. Like, how do you think about that? And maybe I want, I'm a millennial, so I wasn't around for the 87 crash, but sure. do you have a perspective on like the worldview that millennials may have kind of gotten ingrained in them? And how does that kind of inform the way you think about investing? I, I do. And I think it's such a great question. And it's a question that that not enough people ask. You know, this idea that you're, you're shaped by your circumstance, I think is so true. Um, and you know, it's it's funny. This has been brought home to me so in such a such an awful way recently with all the stuff that's been going on, you know, post uh, the Israel Hamas conflict with what we're seeing on on campuses in the U.S. and stuff, and we're seeing things happen. And you kind of sit there and think, how on earth is this happening again? You know, how are Jewish kids being persecuted? Do we not learn our lessons from what happened in the 30s and 40s? And of course, you you then sit there and do the math and you think back and you realize that you know, my dad, my dad's 85 this year and he was born uh, at the outbreak of the Second World War. So for you to have been alive in the lead up to the Second World War, for you to have been alive and aware of what was happening in World War II, the reasons for it, you're over 100 now. So there aren't many people left that remember these times. And so you know, we as human beings, we tend to, when the people aren't around to tell those stories uh, and mankind is just this kind of, procession of handing down stories to different generations. This is how we, we build our culture. Um, and, and without those people around, without the parents and the grandparents to, to tell these stories, the things that they experience to their, to their kids, you know, it's, um, we lose them and we, and we forget and we, and we make the same mistakes over and over again. You know, I, just, I, I was in France seeing my father this, uh, this summer. I had, I had like three days to spare in my, in my uh, travel schedule, and I and I went down to France, and I I filmed an interview with my dad. I wanted to sit down with him and get his story because I, you know, I I my my grandfather died before I was born, so I didn't know my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've got grandkids now, and and I wanted to preserve my dad's stories, so stories of the war, and stories of the seventies and the sixties, and all all these things he's been through. Um, that really, you know, my kids are going to have no connection to that. My grandkids certainly no connection to that. And so preserving these stories is, is really important. So, so sorry, that's a kind of long-winded uh, no, no, uh, preamble. No, you can talk but, as long but, as you but, want but, on the show. But get, right, but getting back to your, your question about the millennials and, and how they invest, and I think this is incredibly true. You know, uh, I, I interviewed Kyle Bass uh, many, many years ago, and, mm -hmm. and I asked him, I asked him what, the, what was the worst thing that you've had happen to you in your career? And he said, without, she didn't even hesitate for a second. He said, the worst thing that ever happened to me was the very first stock I shorted went to zero. And you think about that, right? And and you think, well, that's great. No, you sure the stock went zero. And he said, no, no, it was the worst thing that could happen because I suddenly thought shorting was easy. You find a bad stock, you short it, it goes to zero, you clean up, move on. He said, in the next half a dozen stocks, I lost all the money I made the first one and more. And so I think if you if you if you take that analogy and you think about what it's like to 
be a millennial. Um, you know, and I have I have two millennial daughters at kind of either end of that of that of that age group. Um, what you've grown up in, if you strip out the financial crisis, which except the leading edge of millennials, the, the trailing edge of millennials don't really know what the financial crisis was or, or have any remember of it, unless obviously their parents unfortunately lost their jobs or their homes or something. But as, a, as an event, they don't really have any understanding of it. But if you strip that out and you look at the conditions that millennials have learned to invest in, they're unbelievable. I mean, falling interest rates, free access to capital, rising stock markets, it's the, it's the perfect investing environment to be really bad at investing and make money. It's perfect. You couldn't get any better. Mm -hmm. You could be the worst investor in the world and make money. Um, and that's a really dangerous thing to do because what tends to happen is after those periods, you quickly move into really difficult uh, markets. And going back to Carl's analogy, you know, the last 20 years has been shorting your first stock and it going to zero. And as Carl said, the next six took away all the money he'd made in the first one and then some because he, he just figured out, oh, oh, well, I know how this works and this one didn't work, but that one didn't work. But I know how it works because I remember that first one and, and it went to zero. And that's my fear for millennials is that they're, they've come of age and they've learned to invest in really, really straightforward conditions. And they're about to go into a period where very little uh, of what they've learned is going to work very well simply because of um, if nothing else, the, the interest rate environment, the cost of capital environment are going are gonna to kind of uh, negate many of the things they've learned to do. And so I think there's some very hard lessons out there. And you can either you can either learn from observation or you can learn from listening to people. Uh, but when it comes to things like money and investing and success and hubris and ego, which are all tied up in this, uh, you know, there are things you can learn. I'm sorry, there are things you can be taught but there are things you have to learn. And unfortunately, anything that has ego and hubris wrapped up in it, and investing is a perfect example of that, is not necessarily something you can be taught. It's something you have to learn. And those lessons can sometimes be really, really painful. So that that, that does concern me. Mm -hmm. I want to bring up an idea with you, because just kind of talking about like generational stuff. Because um, I saw a tweet, um, and, I, and I flagged it. And the tweet was from Brian Sullivan from CNBC, who... I, I think he's wonderful. I watch his show all the time. Uh, so just plugging for my friend Brian, who's had Kyle on his show many times. And he made this point, and I just want to get your reaction, that if you're older and you own stuff, like you own stocks and house, the economy might seem pretty good because stuff's been things have been going up. But if you're younger and you're trying to own stuff, um, someone like me who would like to buy their first house, the economy is nearly impossible because of the price of the stuff you want to own keeps going up. What do you think about that? That idea, just maybe generationally. I, I, I think he's absolutely right. And this, you know, what's happened over this these last twenty years is is unequivocally the rich have got richer, and the poor have at best struggled to keep up, and and uh, and at worst have gotten poorer. And you know how this cycle ends. Um, it only ends one way, and that is with a massive transfer of wealth back from. The boomer generation and uh, and the Gen X generation, to a slightly lesser extent, to the millennials and the Gen Z generation, and and the question is, you know, how does that transfer take place? Does it take place with a massive crash in markets that allows uh, and markets and asset prices that allows those uh, in uh, younger generations to afford to buy houses? Does that not happen and it's confiscated? Uh, is, does it happen because we have inflation and people are out on the streets and, and policymakers are forced to impose taxes on the wealthy to redistribute the wealth? Does it happen when the millennial generation or the Gen Z generation start uh, uh, start taking seats in Congress and the Senate in sufficient numbers to start representing their constituents and and conducting policies that that take care of that redistribution of wealth? One way or another, it kind of has to happen, and it always does. And and the fear is that it happens through coercion or massive societal unrest. And the hope is that you know we we find politicians who can who can figure out a way to redistribute that wealth mm -hmm. in a sensible, um, thoughtful, uh, you know, non-destructive way. And you know, if you're trying to handicap the two ends of that spectrum of outcomes between you know thoughtful politicians coming up with policies and social unrest 
sadly, uh, I don't see too many thoughtful politicians around today. Um, and the and the and the loudest ones, um, like the AOCs of the world, are very are very clear about how black and white they see the world and what they want to do. And it's fair enough, right? When they're when they're in power, they'll they'll be in a position to to execute the policies they they think represent their constituents the best. Um, I don't necessarily think those those policies and the way that they plan to go about them are, are going to be in the best interest of society as a whole, and that's in terms of social stability. But this has to take place, and it's going to take place one way or the other as we kind of move through this this fourth turning phase. And um, and you know we we better all be ready for that. And we better all be ready for it. And, and hopefully, those those wealthy generations are are going to be willing to give up some of their uh, some of their uh, benefits or some of the benefits they've accrued through those years. And they'd like to do it, I'm sure, through inheritance and be able to leave their house to their kids and leave money to their kids so that kids can get on the ladder, the ladder that way. But I don't necessarily think, with the way you know healthcare is and the way people are living longer, that's going to happen in time. Mm. Yeah, and you brought the fourth turning. Um, so we had Neil Howe was on this show on episode ninety three for the folks if they want to go check it out. And I know you've interviewed him too. And yeah, yeah. So when you bring up like, okay, so the way healthcare is, I guess people are living longer too in those boomer generations, the life expectancy. So I believe did you, were you part of that video that came out on Real Vision several years ago around like the retirement crisis? Was, was that- no, I think I think no. that was that was after I'd left. Yeah, I think it was oh, okay. too, I, not 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 too long after, but just after I left. Okay. I don't know why I thought for some reason, but um, but maybe even more on like the teasing out further the fourth turning thesis. Yeah. Can I hear more of your views there? Yeah. Look, uh, I've, I've interviewed Neil a number of times. Yeah, Neil, Neil and I have become uh, quite friendly over the years and he's a, he's a, he's a terrific guy, but his, the, the work he's done, he and the late Bill Strauss did with um, fourth turning back in 97 uh, is extraordinary. And everybody should read it. And I think anybody who has read it has a much better understanding, not only of, of what's happening today and why, but the extent of the potential peril that we are in as a society right now. You know, um, This idea that, that mankind repeats the same mistakes comes back to what I was saying earlier on about, the, the, about generations dying out. And there's, there's a reason that these turnings last you know, roughly 80 years to, to, to go through the cycle, because that's the length of a human life. So what was learned in the last fourth turning is forgotten by this one. That's why we make the same mistakes over again. And, and you, know, the, you know, the fourth turning for those who haven't read the book is just a, you know, it's a 20 year period of crisis when, when society has lost faith in, in the institutions that govern it. Um, and in this case, you know, we're talking about not just uh, domestic politics. We're not talking about just the people losing face in the House of Parliament in the UK or Congress and the Senate in the US or the Diet in Japan or wherever else it may be, but also they're losing uh, faith in other institutions that were set up uh, after the last fourth turning. And you know, we talk about the IMF and the World Bank and the United Nations. Um, and so society reaches this point where trust is gone and and people want to tear the structure down and rebuild it again in a, in a, in a better, um, to use the language of today, more inclusive, more diverse way. And again, that tends to happen um, with a fair amount of conflict. And and you know the the, the the signatures of fourth turnings tend to be financial crises. You know, nineteen twenty nine was the beginning of a fourth turning. We saw the Great Depression, uh, and they tend to culminate in wars. Uh, World War Two was the end of the last fourth turning. And so you know, here we are. That this this fourth turning began in two thousand eight, and Bill and Neil were talking about this uh, eleven years prior to that, talking about how. You know, we should expect financial crises, and hey presto, one comes along right on cue, uh, and and the fourth turning will will culminate, unfortunately, at the end of this decade. So we've got another seven, six years to get through, seven years to get through, uh, and the chance of us doing that without there being some kind of major conflict um, gets lower by the day. And you know, in 2015, I um I I, I did a speaking tour in Scandinavia, and I, and I put a, a a presentation together, which was called "The Consequences of the Economic Peace," and it was a it was a kind of a parody of Keynes's book, "Consequences of the, the Economic Consequences of the Peace." And I was talking about what was ultimately going to happen because we'd had this economic peace, we'd had this wonderful set of investment conditions for such a long time now, and there would be consequences to that. 
and I went through cycles and I went through wars and I, I showed how these cycles overlap and how wars tend to happen at the end of these turnings. And um, I went through the you know, the 19th century and I went through the 20th century and explained you know the, the war cycle and how Vietnam and the Second World War and Korea, they all happened at the peak of these cycles. And when I finished giving the presentation, um, guy in the front row puts his hand up and he says to me, um, he says, so are you saying there's going to be a war? Uh, and you could feel in the audience, people were kind of, what the hell is this guy talking about? It's going to be a war. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I'm not saying there's going to be a war. What I'm saying is for the first time in many, many years, I can't say to you there's not, not going to be a war. So the idea of war as a probability, we're not there yet, but as a possibility, it's gone from zero to a positive number. And when you reach a positive number, when you're talking about the chance of there being you know, a, 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 an international conflict, then you have to start thinking very seriously about what does that mean? And this was, this was January 2015, I had this conversation with people. And um, you know, here we are today, in, almost in January 2024, almost nine years later, um, and it's not that it was a great prediction on my part at all. It's just look here's history. It, it was a it was a retrospective, not a forward looking thing. So here's what you can expect to happen, because we are cyclical creatures. We we do things in cycles, and so whether we like it or not, whether we want to believe it or not, the the odds on all these bad outcomes have increased significantly. And when bad outcomes become a probability. You have to have a plan to deal with them. And if you think a war is a 1% probability, fine. Give it 1% of your attention. It's fine. Just give it past thought. If you think it's a one in a hundred chance this happens, then don't worry about it. If you think it's a 50-50% chance of occurring, then you, you've got some serious decisions to make. And, and you better think about them now rather than when you know when the guns of August start sounding and and people start crossing borders, yeah. How do you? How are you? Will you share with us? Like, how are you thinking about, or how are you preparing for such a probability to play out? No, I, 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 the last thing I worry about is my investments. I worry about my kids, to be honest with you, and my grandkids. You know, I mean, it, it, it's it's we've reached that point, and, and I think a year ago or two years ago, people wouldn't have been thinking that. But when you look at the horrendous images coming in from Ukraine, you look at the horrendous images coming in from the Middle East. Um, you know these are these are real people losing real kids and, and being having their homes destroyed. These are this is what happens in war, and so I, you know I'm much more worried about my kids than I am my investments. And so you know for me, um, you know I've 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 been uh, I've been very cautious for a long long time now because I, you know, I've and I've missed an awful lot. Of gains. Fortunately, I've had um, a significant allegation to gold, and that's performed incredibly well. So it's it's meant I haven't made the crazy gains that I would have made had I been in you know cryptocurrencies or you know tech stocks or you know meme stocks. But but I don't care about that. I'm not. That's not what I'm looking to invest in. It's not. I don't want the volatility associated with them. I'm looking to play defense, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's to to put things in simple terms. That's the big sea change. It has been a great time to play offense for 20 years, except for a couple of short periods. And and, and it's now time to at least think about playing defense. And so, you know, I, as I said, I gave a presentation earlier this year. And I said in that, I said, look, if you've been invested in markets, just in markets, if you just put money in an IRA, gave it to an RA and said, just have me in the markets, you got rich. And the point now is, how do I stay rich? How do I not give this back? Because the markets, we're not going to have another ten years like the last ten. Uh, I, I feel very confident in saying that. And so, why would you think for one second that the same strategy, the same allocations, are going to work for you in the next ten years? Yeah, that's a good point. I want to hear on your views on gold because that tends to be a really popular subject on this show. And I had um, Michael Howell on recently mm -hmm. of Cross Border Capital, and he yeah, was Michael's making great. a case. He is great. He's so lovely. He was making yeah. a case that gold he, it wouldn't surprise him if it you know rose 50 percent in the next two to three years so like a three thousand handle what's what's kind of your thesis on or outlook for gold look i i've been constructively bullish with gold for a number of years and and, and there will be many people watching this who will go right okay uh unleash the gold bug um and i've been called a gold bug by by uh 
many, many people. And, and that's fine. I, I take all that with a pinch of salt. But for me, I don't, I, I mean, you know, I, when I say I could care less about the price of gold, I, I really do mean it. I don't focus on the price at all. You know, I want to own gold. It's not a trade for me. It's not something that I have a price target on. Um, you know, I've owned gold because I, I, my concern has been um, the protection of purchasing power. That's been my concern for a decade now. And regardless of what the CPI uh, would have you believe, purchasing power, um, and I'm seeing it everywhere I go now, is not two, three, five, ten percent higher. Over the last ten years, things are fifty percent higher, and, and the cost of everything is through the roof. So, gold for me has been a way of just preserving that purchasing power, and it's done a phenomenal job. You know, from from two thousand, I think gold's Kager is just shy of ten percent. I think it's nine point seven percent a year, and so. If I can, if I can have uh, an asset that has no liability to it, that while it's volatile, um, it's volatile in short periods, and as I say, over that twenty-year period, it, it's just steadily climbed higher. I can sleep at night. So I, I own a significant amount of gold because at some point in the future, I believe that it will, it will not only preserve my purchasing power, but it will enhance my purchasing power. And, and the perfect example of that was two thousand eight. You know, the gold price was kind of six hundred dollars going into two thousand eight, and then kind of Bear Stearns went under, and gold popped to eight hundred bucks. And then Lehman happened, and everyone went, "Here, right, here we go, here we go, this is it." And gold fell because it was liquidity, and people were were selling gold to raise liquidity to to help offset other positions. And you know, everybody was like, oh, "Gold was supposed to go through thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand. What the hell's going on?" But if you look at the fact that gold fell, let's call it 20% um, and bounced pretty quickly, the S&P lost 50, 60% of its value. And so your purchasing power, if you wanted to then not sell your gold at a, at a price, but exchange your ounces of gold for shares, you'd increase your purchasing power significantly. And so I don't look at 3,000 as a target. I don't look at 5,000, 10,000, whatever it may be. There will come a point in time where we get some kind of crash or gold uh, responds to crazy monetary policy and, and the price goes up, there will come a time, I'm pretty confident, that I will be able to take the ounces of gold that I've accumulated and exchange mm -hmm. them for, I don't know, a harbourfront property in Sydney. Let's talk about that. That's unaffordable now, but in gold terms, if the price of property falls, you know, right now, let's say it would take every ounce of gold I own to exchange for a Sydney harbourside property, I'd rather own the gold now because I think it gives me optionality. If the price of Sydney real estate gets cut in half and gold actually goes up based on the whatever crisis precipitated the fall in housing, and I can exchange a quarter of my gold coins for that house, I'd probably rather own the house. So I will exchange my coins for that house. So the price really to me is, you know, I won't say it's an irrelevance because I know to a lot of people who, who trade gold, it's incredibly important, and gold is a is something that if you're a trader, a technical trader, gives you so many entry and exit points. I, I couldn't do it; drive me crazy. But a lot of people do. But for me, it's it's what what can I exchange my gold for at some point, and and when I can make that exchange into something I'd rather own more, I will make it without without you know any kind of fondness for gold um, that that kind of makes me pause. Mm, so you so you own the coins. No, oh, I, own, okay, I own coins. I own bullion. Yeah, I'm just oh, using that. People always ask me, like, what's the way to own it or something? Okay, coins and bullion. Do you do the yeah. ETFs or anything like that or no? I, I don't. Um, okay. And look, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories about the ETFs and whether yeah, the gold's do they there. Own the underlying. Yeah, yeah. And look, yeah. look, the simple truth is, I, you know, I'm, I'm as sure as I can be that the Sprott ETF have the gold. I've spoken to the guys there. And I know people who've exchanged their ETFs for physical gold. Um, the GLD, I've, I've heard from people I know. Who have tried to exchange their ETFs for gold and weren't allowed to do it. That doesn't necessarily mean the gold isn't there, by the way. But I've heard that it became an issue. Um, and so for me, th the ease of the ETF, you are only going to find out you've got a problem in the event of a crisis, and that's exactly when you need to know mm. you haven't got a problem. So if if you if you want to own gold as an insurance policy, as a as a way to preserve purchasing power, own gold. It's not. A massive stretch to own it. It's not a huge inconvenience. Yes, there's a cost to it, but but certainly for the last quarter of a century, the the increase in gold has more than offset the cost of owning physical gold. 
and there's no liability there. There's no there's no encumbrance on it if there's a problem. An ETF, if we have a massive crash, they can close the stock market. What are you going to do then? You know? Yeah, good point. Um, and if you if you do want to own gold, don't hold it in the vault of a bank. Hold it in a in a secure third party storage facility that won't get closed if they close all the banks for for you know some kind of reset that everyone's talking about. So it, it's um you know for a lot of people. As soon as you talk about gold, their eyes glaze over and they kind of not oh, this yeah, audience. <laughs> they no, love look, it, and, and good for them because I, you know, like, yeah. I think it's important to keep an open mind. I, 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 by the way, I completely understand why people react that way because gold is—it's an emotional asset. You you can't value it. It's not a company. It doesn't have employees. It doesn't have a cash flow. It's no balance sheet. You can't you can't look at its numbers and say has it performed? Has it performed? You know, what's it worth? It's a faith based asset. But it's a faith-based asset that has a six-thousand-year track record of of paying off in times of crisis, and I think that's important, particularly you know wrapping everything else we've spoken about as we head into a period that is is traditionally associated with crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, let me see if I could sneak two more questions in. Um, sure. You were talking about how, like, you know, regardless of what the CPI sh- would have you believe, purchasing power is not what it used to be. It, it's it is um, much higher. I want to hear more on that. And do you think like the CPI is just not reflective of like what's really happening with inflation? Because it does feel like things are still expensive. I don't know. Well, let's 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 take a step back and think about what the CPI is and what it's used for. You know, um, CPI is is a you know, basket of goods, and and it's it's designed to calculate the change in inflation every year. Um, but importantly, just about every government payment is linked to CPI. And so all the kind of welfare payments, they're all kind of CPI linked. And so if you think about the government, it is absolutely in their best interests, has been, to have the lowest CPI reading possible. Because the higher the CPI is, the more money they have to pay out in benefits every year. Um, and as we've watched the the national debt of the United States reached $33 trillion, um, the less money they can pay out, the better for them. And so if you look back through the history of CPI, you will not find an adjustment to the CPI methodology that resulted in a higher CPI. When they make adjustments in the methodology, when they add adonics and they add substitution, they do all these things to try and make it more reflective of real conditions, it always results in a lower number, always. Um, and so that's the incentives. And, and, and you know, as Charlie Munger said, God rest his soul, mm-hmm. show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And so the incentives here are to minimize the amount of payments made by the US government in, in you know, social transfers. And the best way to do that is to have a lower CPI. So we have a lower CPI. And that was great and has been great and remains great, except in a time where you have committed to a 2% CPI number and you're being judged on whether you achieve that target or not. And that's kind of the problem for the Fed, <coughs> excuse me, is in trying to generate this magical unicorn 2% CPI number. Uh, when the real CPI number, I think anybody that, that shops at a grocery store um, or has a roof over their head or pays medical bills or any of the other things that we have to heat to energy bills, anybody would tell you that the cost of living for them has not been going up at 1% a year and, and sub 2%. It just hasn't. And you cannot argue that. Um, this is where the beauty of hedonics and substitution came in. So for, for people to understand, substitution is um, uh, part of the CPI calculation where they say, well, you know, if the price of beef goes up, uh, people will substitute chicken for that. So if beef goes up 10%, people will substitute chicken. So we can knock some off that because they won't eat beef anymore. They won't buy beef. It'll mow out the basket and they'll buy something cheaper. Uh, and hedonics is this idea that um, uh, if you bought a $20,000 car this year um, and you bought the same, the base model, let's call it a base model Hyundai, and you bought a base model Hyundai, cost you $20,000 this year. And then next year, you want to go and buy the base model Hyundai. Well, guess what? It's $25,000 this year. Um, so it's up 25%. Well, hang on. How can that be? Well, with hedonics, what we say as well, yes, but you've got heated seats in this one. And you've got a much better uh, Bluetooth stereo system. And this one's got Apple CarPlay in it. And it's got uh, adaptive cruise control. So you're paying 5000 more for it. But really, 
you've probably got $6,000 of additional extras in the car. So actually, the price of the car went down $1,000 uh, for the CPI calculation. Now, obviously, you can understand the logic behind that. You're getting a much more thrown into your car. You're getting more than $5,000 of value thrown into your car for the $5,000 increase. So, for, so from, a, from a purely technical standpoint, you can understand that. But if you're someone who's got $20,000 and needs to buy a car, you can't buy the $20,000 model anymore. It doesn't exist. So mm -hmm. your cost of buying a car has gone up 25%, whether you get more for your money or not. So you know, this is the problem with, with the CPI. And everywhere you go, you know, and, and I've, I've, I've traveled a lot this year. I've been a lot of places. Um, and the observations I make in all of them, you know, just in the last month, I've been to the US, to Sweden, to London, to Spain, to France, uh, and to the Cayman Islands. And in every single place, uh, the, I see the same things. I see the cost of uh, restaurants through the roof to the point where you kind of go, oh my God, this is expensive. Mm -hmm. I see the cost of groceries through the roof. I see the cost of hotels climbing. But I also see restaurants packed and bars packed and everybody's out spending money having a good time. And so when you, when you kind of think about that, you realize – Several things. First, you realize that there's no way the CPI is 5%. Prices are not, categorically not 5% or 6% or even 8% higher than they were last year. They are 20% higher than they were last year, 25% higher than they were last year. Um, and then you think about, well, how are all these people affording to be out paying these crazy prices? Uh, and it kind of brings us back to that, that millennial, that Gen Z generation again. And you realize that what you see are a group of people who, I don't know this for sure, but as I as I look around me, are probably couples that have two incomes. Yeah, they probably don't have kids because we know no these generation no kids. They're dinks. Yeah, the dinkies. Yeah, the dinkies, and um and and that is a natural outcome of the things we spoke about earlier. When when you price generations out of having a home, what are you going to do? You're not. Some of them are going to save for that home. Some of them are going to have kids and struggle, but a lot of them, and we've seen this in the data. I say, well, we're just not going to get married. And if you have two incomes and you have four credit cards between you there and you don't have school fees to pay and you don't have a mortgage to pay, you're renting, you can see why people are able to go out and spend mm. money in expensive restaurants and expensive bars um, because their priority is to do that and enjoy themselves and they've worked hard and why shouldn't they? And yeah. Absolutely right. Why shouldn't you? That's right. And that probably creates more confusion. Okay. So last question before yeah, we have sure. to hop. You asked Kyle Bass, what was the worst thing that happened to him in his career? So I'm going to put that question on you. What was that for you? What's your answer? Oh boy. Jeez, where do I begin? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, the worst thing to have happened to me in my career, um, I think, and as this is the last question, I don't have time to tell you the story. One day I'll tell you the story. Uh, I, in 2010, so I'd been working for what, 35 years, uh, all around the world and, um, and, and never had any problems, any trouble. I got on with everybody I worked with, I had a great time and out of the blue, I got fired for gross misconduct in, in mm. December. In fact, in fact, where are we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly 13 years ago today, I got fired for gross misconduct, and and that meant that I had to I had to take my employer to court um, because you know in, in the business that I was in at the time, being a trader, you know nobody gets fired. You resign, and everyone knows that if you lost money as a trader, you resigned and you go and work somewhere else. And we understand how the game works. But because I'd been fired, I had to I had to sue my employer, um, and it ended up in a three year court battle which I won handsomely at the end, thank God, and got my reputation back and got my livelihood back. But that was by far the worst thing that happened to me in my career. And, you know, incredibly stressful, uh, incredibly stressful situation. I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my friends, the people that stood by me and, and, and were amazing. Yeah, your, your dark hour friends. Yeah, and they were, they were phenomenal. And so you know, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it, 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 it was a, a, an important crucible to go through for me as a as a human being i think 
Yeah. Well, Grant, I have to say you are absolutely wonderful. You're welcome back for part two. I learned so much from you and I know the viewers are too. And so I just want to say thank you so much. And um, can you just let folks know where they can find you, read some of your work, or listen to your podcast before I let you go? Sure. It's very kind. Thanks for having me on, Julia. It's been lovely to catch up again. Um, I Yeah, it's, it's very simple. Grant-Williams.com. Everything you need to know is there. And on Twitter, I am at T-T-M-Y-G-H. Uh, which is the acronym for things that make you go, hmm. Um, I'm not as active as I used to be uh, on Twitter, unfortunately, but um, but grant-williams.com will, will you'll find anything you want to know there. Well, Grant Williams, author of Things That Make You Go, hmm. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. I'll see you in the new year, hopefully. I hope so. Thanks for having me, Julie. I really appreciate it. Good to see you again. <laughs>